You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. We're in a series called Restore My Soul. Sometimes in the summer months, we like to journey through the Psalms. This year, we decided just to go through one Psalm, probably one of the most iconic pieces of poetry uh, that's been written, well-known, even today in a very un- increasingly unchurched age. People are familiar with this particular psalm, Psalm 23. And so, um, again, just to reiterate, I'm not sure where you're at and what's happening in your life. Maybe it's going really great for you. Maybe the inner disposition of your soul mirrors the beautiful weather we have today, sunny and calm. Or maybe it's the opposite. Um, but you're in a great place um, to hear a word from God. And our hope is through this series, even today, is to, to really hear a word that restores our soul, to bring life to areas where maybe we've been leaking out a bit of faith or trust or just gotten a bit beaten up, um, maybe relationally, maybe financially, maybe vocationally, whatever it may be uh, today, I believe God has something to encourage you with. Maybe even if it's not just personal, if you look around in our city, our nation, or the world, it doesn't take long for us to realize that the world's in a pretty beat up shape. Our city's in a pretty beat up shape. Our country's in a pretty beat up shape. So many great things going for it, but at the same time, so much brokenness as well. And so we also want to hear a word that we could bring to our city, our neighbors, uh, a word of restoration. All right, join me in Psalm 23. It's going to be up on the screen, and we're going to read this. And as we've been doing, we've just been taking one particular verse each week. And so we're in week four, so we're zoning in one particular verse. But we're going to read the whole thing together. It says here, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we just invite you to come and speak into our lives today, God. We invite you to come and do what no person can do, and is to encourage our souls, restore our souls, bring truth to areas of darkness. Um, and would you transform us and change us, God? Would you meet us where we're at, but don't leave us there. Move us on in the plan and the purpose you have for us individually and collectively. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you, the great teacher, to come and teach us and lead us into all truth your glory, our joy. Amen. So two quick things as we just look at this psalm collectively. There's a dominant metaphor, not just in this psalm, but it's a dominant metaphor in Scripture. And that is of God being like a shepherd and his people being like a sheep. And so when this was penned and written, it was a very much an agricultural society, very far removed from where we are today. Not many shepherds around. I don't know too many shepherds personally. And so sometimes that imagery, that metaphor can get kind of lost in us, or even press it a bit further, can become offensive in our day and age. You know, our culture encourages us to what? To be independent, to be self-reliant, to be self-sufficient, to not rely on anything or anyone to tell me how life should go. And so to compare humans to sheep can be seen as an offense. You know, sheep are often seen as docile, not the brightest creatures, kind of just helpless. 
and are easily manipulated. And so a lot of people look at that and say, oh, there you go. That's just mindless religion, right? Just mindless religion. Just believe whatever the, the person who has the best beliefs says, and we go along with it. And so obviously we need to appreciate that this was not written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. We're not in the agricultural society, certainly if we're living here in modern Toronto. But this is not... Um, not just about a sheep, a shepherd and a sheep metaphor. The other thing, when you read the psalm, and it's widely believed that King David wrote this psalm, where do you imagine King David writing this? Or where do you imagine King David writing this? And I often think like, oh, right, this he's probably at the end of a nice two-week vacation in the Maldives somewhere. He is living his best life. He's Instagrammed it thoroughly, documented it, and he is penning. He's just in such a serene calm state, and he's like, wow, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Now, I don't know where you imagine it, but oftentimes we can think, oh, it must be in some kind of blissful state. And we don't know exactly when David wrote this. We don't know where exactly he wrote this, but it's largely believed it was probably not. Given the nature of his job as a king, and if you read any much of his story, he's often dealing with different things. If it wasn't just enemies on the outside protecting his people, it was within his camp, even within his own family. Uh, it was probably written in a time where it was pretty stressful for, for King David, pretty coming through some trials or going through some trials. You know, it kind of mirrors, there's a, there's a letter in the New Testament called uh, the letter to the Philippians. It was a church in Philippi. And it's considered the letter of joy. If you read it, it's a short book. It's four chapters. We actually did a series years ago called Finding Joy. And it's all about joy, really. And uh, the person who wrote that, Apostle Paul, wrote it in prison. <laughs> and so it's quite a, quite a stark contrast sometimes. Um, and so with those things in mind, in light of those observations of that sheep-shepherd metaphor that can kind of get lost, maybe offensive to modern-day thinking, and just the reality of life is not green pastures and quiet waters a lot of the time. Uh, let's come to this psalm not as some blind compliance that God's just looking for blind compliance from us, or come to this psalm as some sentimental platitude. It's kind of nice to hang up on your wall, but it has no real bearing on real life. Rather, it's a psalm all about wrestling with trust in a good God in the midst of real life. And verse 4, which we're going to focus on today, is all about that. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, if we jump into that metaphor for a little bit, now David was a shepherd boy before he was a king, so he knew a lot about this. Um, oftentimes, literally, uh, particularly in the drier months, in the drier regions, shepherds would need to lead their flock to greener pastures uh, for sustenance, for the things that their flock needed. And oftentimes, in that particular part of the world, that journey took them through deep, uh, sharp, shallow valleys and high mountain trails. And so, literally, this would be a very dangerous journey for sheep to take uh, for two primary reasons. One, predators were always looking out for sheep that would go astray and be easy prey for them. And the second thing is also being led astray off the path, these narrow paths. If they had a misstep or got lost, they would be astray from the flock and obviously land up in a dangerous place. And so literally in one sense for sheep, it was a valley of the shadow of death. Death lurked, danger lurked at every corner, if you will, upon that journey going through the valleys or the mountaintops. Now, if we take it less literally, obviously, there's obviously a figurative meaning this, the valley of the shadow of death, the valley, shadow, death, kind of sounds like worst case scenario to me. 
right? Worst case scenario thinking to me. Um, that phrase in other parts of the Hebrew scriptures has been translated as deep gloom, deep darkness, or even disorder. And so what David, I think, is painting for us here is a scene of just kind of the worst case scenario that sometimes we can find ourselves in. The valley, we're in the valley, there's a shadow, there's the, 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 the lurking of death all around. Now, you and I know that a shadow is an area of darkness caused by light being obscured. So let that just encourage you for a minute. It's not the absence of light, it's just it's been obscured. But sometimes if you're in a dark place, you don't, that doesn't matter, right? All you see is the darkness, all you feel is the darkness that that shadow brings. You know, if I actually, one of the genres of movies I enjoy is horror movies. I actually really do enjoy horror movies. And almost always horror movies are in some kind of dark space or place. Have you ever watched those movies or thrillers and like it's at night, it's always raining for some reason. The lights never work, right? Or they're going into an abandoned building. It's dark. There's no flashlight or the flashlight, all of a sudden the batteries don't work. Darkness cultivates a fear within us. There's something about the darkness that cultivates that, that lets fear flourish if we let it. So let's talk a little bit about fear because he's talking about this. I will not fear. And so fear is a primal emotion within us. Fear is actually a very helpful emotion for us to avoid danger. If you didn't have fear, if you were fearless, you would probably be dead by now, right? Because you'd run off that cliff, you'd jump into that road, you'd stand in front of that, whatever it is. And so fear, in the best sense, is a really life-giving emotion for your mind. It's like, alert, danger is here, stay away, okay? But fear is also very complex because sometimes we fear things that aren't dangerous at all. Now, just Google this later, but what are the top 10 phobias? And you'll see some words you can't pronounce of things that people are afraid of that you might read and go like, really? <laughs> You're afraid of that? And so fear can be a very complicated emotion. It can be a very um, harmful emotion to us when it paralyzes us in the face of things we really typically shouldn't be afraid of. Our scripture backs this up. Because one of the most common uh, refrains or commands in scriptures is something along the lines of, do not be afraid. Many, many times that's the most common command in scripture from the Lord to his people, do not be afraid. And so just right there, we've got to assume, well, it's because we're very prone to being afraid that he constantly encourages us not to be afraid. Now, fear is a continuum um, on the on the one side is like just mild anxiety, all the way to like crippling dread. And probably some of us find ourselves somewhere in that continuum. Now, overcoming fear, at least biblically, isn't about switching off the fear emotion as if you could even do that. The great thing about scripture, the great thing about Psalms is just the validation of our human emotions. Um, just picking up what Bert was saying earlier, like it's okay to feel afraid. It's okay to feel what you feel, but it's not the end of the story. And we're going to continue a little bit with that. And so overcoming fear isn't about shutting off your fear emotion, but it's learning, um, and it's not learning not to be afraid. It's about knowing what you're afraid of. 
and responding wisely to it. It's about finding a way to articulate what it is that's causing you fear or anxiety. And half the battle of breaking that is just articulating it versus this cloud of anxiety, this cloud of fear that envelops us. Now, recently I was reading an article, a really interesting article. It was called The Age of Anxiety. And the author recalls how Western civilization has been through different ages, right? Age of enlightenment, age of reason, age of science, and so forth. And so what would you, if you had to define this age, the age of what? What would the age this age be? In the age of the screen, the age of inflation, the age of what? Global burning, global warming, whatever it may be. Well, Canadian philosopher, here's what the, the article goes on to say, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor prefers the moniker of the age of authenticity, to express that being true to ourselves has become the highest goal, certainly in the West. Uh, Princeton's Robert George has called it the age of feeling. Both philosophers are correct to point out that allegiance to our emotions. The idea that reality should be conformed to our subjective feelings rather than our ancestors' idea that we could conform our feelings to objective reality. Now, it's no surprise that the age of authenticity gives way to the age of feeling that then gives way to the age of what's been called the age of anxiety. That's what they're calling our age right now, certainly in the West, the age of anxiety. I mean, you think about it just briefly, just what's been happening in our world in the last few years, a global pandemic, the geopolitical and economic situation that faces us right now, the tensions that are happening right now in our world. Um, social media, just in the last decade or two decades, the proliferation of social media giving us access to a 24-7 news cycle or just uh, cultivating great virtues like envy when you look at your other people living their best life and all that kind of thing just creates an age of an anxiety. So the article goes on to say, but there is a more profound theological reason that the age of feeling turns to an age of anxiety. We are creatures and not the creator. We were never designed to bear the impossible weight of creating and sustaining our identities. That is a God-sized task. And whenever we elevate ourselves to supreme status, playing God, anxiety inevitably spikes. No one's talking about that much, right? Anxiety is all about what's happening in our world, and legitimately so, right? Political, whatever, economic, absolutely, those are factors. But no one's really talking a lot about how we're designed, especially on the West, because it's all about us, me, being the center of my world. Self-definition, self-fulfillment, self-realization, the self has become the God of our age. And so Jesus acknowledges this. He says, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Shouldn't surprise us. In this world, you will have trouble. But when we look to ourselves to get us out of that trouble, anxiety will inevitably spike. So as we look to the rest of this message, what does trust and restoration look like in a troubled, anxious age and world? And so coming back now to verse 4, I believe verse 4 gives us a really healthy way to cultivate trust in the face of very real-life challenges that you and I may encounter or will encounter. The first one is reality. Face 
reality. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not, I can't believe I'm walking through this valley. I never saw this coming. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's an acknowledgement of reality. It's an acknowledgement that life is not always green pastures and quiet waters, which he's just penned a couple of verses ago. Even the verse prior to this talked about paths of righteousness. And it's an acknowledgement. Sometimes being on the right path will take you through valleys of deep darkness. Sometimes if you're facing a barrage of opposition, sometimes if you're facing a barrage of suffering or whatever it may be of challenge, doesn't mean you've failed. Could mean that you're on the right path. In this world, you will have trouble. There are going to be dark and dangerous valleys of life for all of us. Loss of health, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, marital conflict, divorce, economic hardship, you name it, relational conflict, disappointment. It's not that it happens, it's how are we going to respond, though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, face reality. But then secondly, what does he do? He says, I will fear no evil. The second one is forging a resolve in the face of reality. Forging a resolve, a response to whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is, the fear or the anxiety that's trying to grip and cripple and paralyze your path. The psalmist faces the reality of the deep darkness with resolve. He doesn't diminish, he doesn't deny it, but he also doesn't give it a place of ultimate reality. It's reality, but it's not the end of reality, certainly from a Christian perspective. God gets the last say in our reality. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? Right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, I will fear no evil. You know, um, oftentimes this reminds me, I've, I've used this quote quite a bit, but Viktor Frankl, if you're not familiar with him, he was an Austrian psychologist and, and um, neurologist who survived the, the Holocaust. And he went on to uh, write the best-selling book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. And he writes about his experience of being in the prison camps and witnessing um, the other prisoners around him. And uh, he says, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And so many, sometimes we spend a lot of energy trying to fix and change the situation, which ultimately we're powerless to change, when it's our response to the situations that is where the energy and the work needs to go in, and how we can be better resolved people in the face of whatever life may throw at us. And so the thing about fear and anxiety, it makes us particularly susceptible to idols. because. We want to look to something or someone to make us feel better in that situation, to get us through, to assure us everything's going to be okay, to comfort us. That's, those are natural feelings that we want, but it's what we attach to that, what we look to, that becomes the key thing for us. A couple of weeks back, we spoke about the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, but we could fill it in with think, approval is my shepherd. I will not fear. Or success is my shepherd. I will not, if I'm successful, it'll remove all fear from me. Or money is my shepherd. I will not fear, right? 
whatever, that relationship, a perfect family, the image of a great marriage is my shepherd. I will not fear. And we could say, I am my shepherd. I will not fear. It's probably more relatable to what is the dominant uh, value in our culture today. So, I will not fear his resolve in the face of the reality. Now, if the verse just stopped there, that would fit right in with the narrative of today. You got this, David. Just look yourself in the mirror, slap yourself. I will not fear. Just say it with me slowly. I will not fear. In other words, I am going to muscle through this. Fear is for those people. So we must be very careful because what we're not saying is, hey, look within yourself and just overcome your anxiety. Let's overcome your fear. That's not what the verse is saying. It didn't stop there. So it could be seen as very prideful. I will not fear. But the third part of that verse is so key. It's the key to cultivating trust in the midst of real life challenges. It's not just facing reality. It's important. It's not just finding resolve in the face of that reality that's important, but it's the why behind your resolve that's the key. It's finding the reason. And he gives us the reason in the last part of the verse. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. There's his reason to have the resolve in the face of his reality. There's his reason to not be fearful in the midst of a valley of deep darkness and even death. I don't know if you noticed, but this psalm, up until this verse, has only been about the Lord, the Lord. And then in verse 4, it turns personal. You, you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. It, it gets very personal. And I think there's a reason for that. Because I think there's an opportunity to find God in a different way in our deepest valleys than there are when things are going well. There's an opportunity to discover an intimacy and a connection and a presence of God in our lives when things are not going great, when we're at the end of ourselves. And I think there's absolute reason for that. When we're at the end of ourselves, we turn to Him. We're desperate for Him, and He shows up in a big way. That just sometimes when life is going good, we don't really turn to Him in ways that we could and should. Dark valleys have the potential to draw us closer to the shepherd that's with us in that valley. Um, psychologist David Benner says it like this, it is relatively easy to meet God in moments of joy or bliss. In these situations, we correctly count ourselves blessed by God. The challenge is to believe that this is also true and to know God's presence in the midst of doubt, depression, anxiety, conflict, or failure. But the God who is Emmanuel is equally in those moments we would never choose as in those we would always gladly choose. I mean, that is the challenge. It's, it's so easy to, to, it's nice to say that, right? It's hard to live it. Um, recently, someone who I'm pretty close to, I was talking to him on the phone, and this person's a real go-getter, very successful, um, really good job, and they just lost their job very abruptly, out the blue, had been terminated. And, uh, and I was checking in with him and just talking, how's, how's that going? And he said, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. It's like almost... It's almost like the Lord was preparing him in some way because in the last couple of months he'd been reflecting on what's my greatest fear. He says, my greatest fear is to lose my job. My greatest fear. And says, you know, Richard, I faced my greatest fear. 
And do you know how liberating it is to face your greatest fear and realize it's not the end of the world? And now I'm having to find God and trust God in a whole new real way than I was when I, things were going well for me. And now figuring out the next move, the next step for him. Now, I, we, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, right? We're not saying that like that. But, but sometimes that happens to us. Life happens to us. God allows life to happen to us. But then in that moment, how we respond to that can take us uh, in a trajectory towards him and our purpose and our plan or away from him and our purpose and our plan. And so it's liberating sometimes to face the thing that's most fearful or causing and gripping our anxiety. And so God's presence is the reason for his resolve, for my resolve in the face of life's reality. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. Now a rod, even to this day, shepherds still use rods and staffs. And a rod is a typical um, uh, stick that's used for mostly protection against enemies, to, to ward off enemies, to protect the sheep against predators. And the staff is a symbol of, of care and concern of the shepherd. A uh, staff would be used to kind of pull the sheep back into alignment if they were going astray. Sometimes the shepherd would just literally use his staff to touch the sheep just to say, I'm here. And so in this beautiful psalm, we see the picture of what the Lord does is he protects us and he's a guide to us, assuring that he's still with us even when the darkness drives out the light and we can't see much of where God is. Your staff, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, they console me, they give me the emotional energy and strength to continue on this valley. Um, so do not be afraid. One of the most, if not the most um, common command in Scripture. Do you know what the second most or up there with the most uh, common commands in Scripture is? It's one word. Remember. That's it. Remember. Do not be afraid. Remember. Maybe right there, that's the sermon for you. Go <laughs> mull it over. Maybe there's something in there for some of you. But one of the next top commands in Scripture is remember. Now, again, why would God tell us to remember? We're prone to forget, apparently, a lot. And so we're prone to forget too easily the ultimate reality of God and His presence and what He's doing in this world. And it can be hard, right? Again, we're in an age of anxiety, 24-7 news cycle. Everything is visually stimulating our five senses. And unless you and I are cultivating the sixth sense of seeing reality from God's perspective, that's going to drown us in that reality. And of course, we need a word to say, remember, that's not the end of reality. That's not the ultimate reality. Yes, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but that's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. You've got me. You're protecting me. You're guiding me. You're not going to let me uh, get lost or devoured by my enemies. Mark says, talking about this remembering, says, yes, there are times when it appears as if the darkness is winning, when the direction of culture, the circumstances of our lives, the poverty of spiritual life among God's people seems tilted toward difficulty, decline, and even death rather than renewal. Yet, at moments like ours, we must remember that God has seeded the world with his dream of renewal. And we, we sing a song that says, even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I go to sleep, God's working. God's not anxious. 
God's not in an age of anxiety. God's all about redemption and renewal. That's the age he's in. He's in the age of redemption and renewal. And how do we know that? By the historical fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's it. And we need to fight to be in that age and not in the age of anxiety. We need to remember to step into that reality that then now allows us to move into the reality of anxiety. Okay, We don't diminish, we don't deny, we don't ignore it. That's not what we're talking about here, but is that we're able to face reality from a different reality. Like, well, my God is in the age of redemption and renewal. And so sometimes it doesn't look like that. So the quote is saying, but we need to remember and do not be afraid. Two commands. Remember, do not be afraid. Okay, right. let's close this out. Here's some very, very practical application. I know some of you are just very practical people. Like, what must I do? Okay, just what am I do? Nice quotes. What must I do? They don't help me. Here's what I think you need to do. If you've got anxiety now, like what's causing you worry right now? Okay? Don't shout it out loud. Just have it in your thought. I mean, you can if you want. And we'll, you know, everyone just shout it out. What's, what's your worry? What's your worry? Um, what's something that's causing you worry right now? Maybe big, maybe small, doesn't matter. But it's causing you worry. So it's significant to you. Right? Either get down a piece of paper later today, so sometime in the week, or pray this out. Acknowledge the reality, even though even though I'm stressed out about my situation at work right now, or even though I fear I might be losing my job, or even though I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills, articulate your concern. If you can get clear on that, that's a major step right there to breaking the anxiety and fear that wants to cripple us. Then secondly, what's your resolve? I will. I will not allow this to consume me. I will not fear. I will not be overly anxious. Concern is one thing, anxiety is another. Concern is a rightful response to things. We should be concerned about our kids. We should be concerned about our financial well-being. We should be concerned about our health. But concern doesn't rob us of peace like anxiety does. I will. And then lastly, what's your reason? For you are with me. Get scriptures, get quotes. For God, you're with me. For you promised you wouldn't... uh, you would take you know, care of all my needs. Um, whatever it is that you're facing, find the promise of God to meet that reality. So that's just a practical thing that you can take from this to bring about trust in God, very real trust in God in the midst of your very real life. Hundreds of years later from when David penned that psalm, Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jewish religious leaders. And he identifies himself as the good shepherd of that Psalm 23 in various ways, but in two particular, uh, very clear ways. In John chapter 10, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on, I am the good shepherd, just in case you missed it the first time. I know my own and my own know me. My own know my voice. This is the way I walk in it. When it's dark, when I'm not sure where the path is, I'm losing it. They know my voice. This is the way I walk in it. Something that we have that David didn't have is we get a, a fuller realization of how God brings about his care and his protection and his guidance for us. Jesus gifts us his word. You know, there's a great other scripture that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. When it's dark, 
this can be a light to say, this is the way, walk in it. This protects us from going astray, from being led off a path that may want to devour us. Your word is a lamp to my feet, your light to my path. But even more so, he's gifted us not just his word, he's given us his spirit. In another verse in John, it tells us the spirit actually is the comforter. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your spirit comforts me. The Holy Spirit can comfort us in in a way that no human being can comfort us. Now, oftentimes God's comfort comes through human beings. So the third thing that God gifts us is his church. The assumption in the shepherd-sheep metaphor is that sheep generally stay in flocks. They're not individuals, right? And there's comfort in that. And so that's maybe for another message another time. But this right here is important. Gathering together as his sheep and having the comfort of one another. But nonetheless, it's Jesus through his word, his spirit, and his people, his church, that provides us the guidance, the comfort, the care that we need when we're walking through valleys of deep darkness, valleys of even death. And so the invitation and the challenge to every single one of us here today is what does trust in Jesus look like for you on a day-to-day basis in the face of the realities that you're facing? Where's the resolve going to come to be able to navigate the troubles that this world will bring you? And there's only one place that I know that can sustain a life of resolve in the face of an increasingly anxious, crazy world, and that is trust in Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And that's the invitation and challenge for every single one of you today. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we're going to join back in a song of worship. But let's pray together here. So for those of you today that you acknowledge, um, just honestly acknowledge your realities that you don't trust Jesus, maybe your step is to put your trust in him the good shepherd. Um, maybe for many of you, I know many of, many of us might be Christians in this room, but you can still say you trust Jesus, but really don't. <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of us, in self-included, is we know the right answer. The right answer is trust in Jesus, but the practically living that out, it's, it's a little more challenging. And maybe today is another way to acknowledge Jesus. I don't fully trust you as I should. And, uh, and I want to change that. That word, restore my soul, is also a word that's often used for turning back, or in the New Testament, repent is the word they use there, and that's what it is. And so today, if you want to restore its soul, it's to turn back to the Good Shepherd. For the first time, for the 19th time, whatever, it doesn't matter, that you turn to Him and put your trust in Him. And so, Father, we as individuals and collective as a people turn back to you today and acknowledge that we don't trust you in the ways that we should. That sometimes, oftentimes, our eyes get off of you and onto the darkness that surrounds us, the trickiness of the path that you've called us to walk. God, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes life just beats the hope out of us. And, um, and I'm thankful that you're a good shepherd who acknowledges that, that your staff nudges us when it needs a nudge and just says, I'm here, I'm with you. You're not alone in this valley. And so today, God, we come before you to place our trust back into you, back upon you, and say, Jesus, you are the good shepherd. We affirm and agree with your words. You are the good shepherd. And you've shown that by laying down your life for us. 
and that as we follow you to have the confidence and resolve that we know you, you know us, God, and you have got us. And so thank you for that. Thank you that your trust in you would flood our hearts with peace, would drive back anxiety and fear so that we too could say, I will not fear. Even though I walk through a deep darkness and deep gloom, I will not fear because for you are with me. You comfort me. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.